You are listening to the Health and Wellness Connection Podcast, the number one wellness podcast designed to provide the latest information to help you achieve your health and wellness goals. Our show features exciting guests, the latest in medical research, and in-depth discussions in current trends on weight loss, nutrition, and fitness. No matter what your interest, the Health and Wellness Podcast has you covered. And now, presenting your illustrious host, Dr. Barry, M.D. Hello, 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 guys, and welcome to another episode of the Health and Wellness Connection. It's your host, Dr. B, and I want to thank you for joining us today for what I hope will be a very entertaining and informative show. Now, um, this is uh, mid-July. It is extremely hot, and we are trying to stay cool, and we got some good info regarding that. But we also want to use this time to give a shout-out to all of our supporters, listeners, sponsors, and the like. Um, First and foremost... We are very excited that, like I said, we have some pretty exciting developments uh, coming on board. And, uh, you know, you guys are going to definitely see those here as we continue with the build out of this entire operation. Now, that being said, um, this show is the Health and Wellness Connection. Um, if you do like the show and what you hear, please feel, feel free to share the show. Um, it's, we're, all, we're, on, we're on all the streaming platforms, particularly Spotify, Google, Amazon, Um, any kind of stream platform used for your device. We also are are on uh, YouTube, so you can check us out on the Health and Wellness Connection YouTube channel. And of course, you can follow me on Instagram at DrBarryMD. Um, Also, we're on TikTok as well, at DrBarryHealth. And last but not least, we're on email, DrBarryHealth at gmail.com. So, enough of that. Um, Well, today's show, we're going to discuss a couple interesting topics. First thing I wanted to kind of touch on was this heat wave that we are dealing with currently. I'm sure you guys, really, no matter where you are in the world, um, you know, we are definitely dealing with this extremely high temperatures, uh, and it's something that people are really having a significant um, issue dealing with. Now, where I am in the southern United States, particularly Texas, heat temperatures have soared over 100 degrees Fahrenheit on a daily basis even with the heat index and the humidity as well those numbers are more closer to 110 degrees Fahrenheit which is extremely hot uh, especially for um, you know places that may not be as used to having these extreme temperatures because really no region has been spared Um, you have Europe there's also an area that's really been going through a lot of extreme heat uh, temperatures as well a few days ago, apparently Rome was at 108 degrees, a part of Spain also in the um, hundreds. And, uh, you know, it's very disturbing, especially in an area that is not used to these kind of temperatures, mainly because of the uh, concern about staying cool. Um, usually places like southern United States, which has been hot for a while, um, most of the buildings there are fitted with air conditioning units, which will help regulate the temperature inside. But parts of the globe that aren't really used to these high temperatures, it's almost as extreme, especially dangerous because of the heat and the lack of ability to cope with the heat due to the lack of air conditioning units in the buildings and whatnot. So it requires people to get creative with how to stay cool as well as maybe retrofitting a lot of these buildings with AC units so that they can potentially help reduce the, uh, 
the dangers of this heat wave that we're dealing with right now. So, um, you know, of course, here on the Health and Wellness Connection, we're going to tell you just a couple of tips as far as how to stay heat. First off, how do you know if you're getting too hot? Well, the concern is that if you're overly, um, if you're just, if you get too hot, meaning you um, are in sustained elevated temperatures and you're not cooling yourself down, um, you can actually go into what's known as a heat stroke. And heat strokes are actually very dangerous because you actually do, uh, it does result in damage to the brain. And uh, it can happen when you're in an overheated state and the body's mechanisms that are designed to help cool you down aren't able to work. Now, when you're in a very humid environment, these things can actually hurt your body's ability to cool down. And that can actually result in increasing your risk of heat stroke. So it's very important that if you are in an extremely warm area and um, you know you don't see a way out or you don't have any immediate way to get into a cooler environment let's say your ac is broken um, what things you want to definitely do to reduce that risk of heat stroke uh, you definitely want to hydrate 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 it's so important to people who are hydrating um, as we lose um, as we lose our ability to, to um, we're sorry as if we're in prolonged temperatures eventually you're going to actually have to burn water or lose water to help keep your body cool and that's how your body keeps your temperature down by helping excrete sweat which is then evaporates off your skin which helps cool you down so when you lose the ability to sweat that's this is when you can get extremely overheated and your risk of heat stroke gets much higher so you need to drink water to help keep the body's functions that enable you to be cool um, are, are working properly and also water of course just helps your body function normally in general so you want to drink water um, you know i tell people drink at least um, at least one to two liters um, bigger you are the more you should be drinking that'll help um, keep you uh, cool especially if it gets hot you should probably increase that even more maybe another 20 percent uh, more just to improve or to make up for those losses you're going to get from you know cooling down if you're in a very hot environment another thing you can do too if you are you know trying to stay cool is uh trying to you know find a cooling center or someplace where you have cool air and mist you know if you don't have a cooling center access you can actually take a spray bottle fill it with water spray it on yourself so you have a cool mist on your body and then get underneath a fan and let it just blow over you too that can also help cool you down so you know staying cool is very important guys um, it's something that you have to do hopefully not too much longer but during these peak summer months it's very important that you do what you can to remain cool because again um, heat stroke is real um, you can definitely have damage to your kidneys and other bodily functions if you're overheated and ultimately um, it is something that you know your body you know can be harmed by so just be careful guys try to stay cool drink a lot of fluids and hydrate all right guys so another study that came across my desk looks at the concept of siestas or taking a nap after a, a, a big meal um, so now this particularly in places that really emphasize large lunches um, and this actually this data came from a study that originated in Spain, which is a country that has an excellent, excellent cuisine. A lot of great food coming out of Spain, so I'm sure the people are definitely going to be overindulging. And they looked at the concept of taking a nap after you sleep, whether or not it's good for you long term. So basically, this study looked at 3,200 people, healthy adults in um, the area of uh, in this area in, in, in Spain, ages 18 to 65. Um, they looked at those people who commonly took midday naps and they looked at these individuals via some local clinics in the area 
And so what they did, they gave them basic questionnaire about their lifestyle and, uh, you know, what they were doing, you know, I'm sure their nap duration, how long they took naps, how often they took naps. And they kind of came away with a few takeaways. They found that 35% of the people who, um, who took about four plus naps per week, um, they found that those who took naps, they had a higher overall BMI. So that means they were had larger body fat, they had a, a higher weight circumference, and they had a higher fasting blood glucose, which is bad. You don't want to have a high fasting blood glucose because that is a large predetermined of diabetes. They also had higher blood pressure, and they had 41% increased odds of a metabolic syndrome like diabetes or other kind of potential metabolic disturbance. So this is people who took naps. Now, those who did not take naps, meaning... Um, you know, not taking these long, prolonged naps, they had a 21% lower odds of having elevated blood pressure. Um, so, you know, ultimately they found also there was association with smoking, meaning uh, smoking, later meals, later nighttime sleep, and eating a large lunch before siesta, they felt was also contributing factors to BMI increases. So ultimately, those who took these long naps, meaning like at least an hour plus after eating a large lunch, you know, it was overall harmful for their overall health. So it's kind of interesting because, you know, people usually associate naps with, you know, letting your food digest and this and that. Um, ultimately, you know, if you're eating a large meal, it's very important that you're finding somehow some way to burn those calories to, you know, reduce the risk of obesity. And if you're sleeping a lot, chances are you're not going to be burning a lot of calories, even though you do burn calories during your sleep, but not at the level you would be if you were up and about, you know, you should probably be reducing your intake. So, yeah, so siestas, while they may feel nice in the, in the short term, long term, they could potentially be harmful, especially if you're eating a large meals prior to these siestas more than four times a week. So interesting study out of Spain. Again, only 3,200 people were looked at, so fairly small. Um, but again, there are some, I think, pretty interesting takeaways we can, um, you know, take from this from this data. All right. So more sobering news um, from United States specifically. I know my international listeners, um, it'd be interesting to just kind of see what's going on out here, because, again, it could portend the things that could be going on in your neck of the woods as well. But either way, it's un- I mean, we have some concerning things that are rising in the United States society. Um, overdoses. Um, deaths from overdoses have risen quite a bit over the past few years here in America, along with gun violence, which is also steadily on the rise. Um, this actually came um, over a study done in the uh, the Journal of American Medical Association's Internal Medicine uh, News article. I'm sorry, it's the news journal, I should say. And they published that over a 20 year period, the deaths from external causes have almost doubled. So it's and this is again overdose deaths, gun violence deaths. It's it's and it shows that we're kind of heading in the wrong direction when it comes to um, you know overall um, some the overall data that we want to actually keep track of. So what they did, they looked at the causes of deaths um, from the period of January 1999 to December 2020, and these are they noted that a pre, over this period in the United States. 3.8 million people died that were about 20 years and older. So young people were removed more 20 years and up. And over this 1999 of January to December of 2020, 3.8 million people um, 
were deceased. So they looked at the causes of deaths. They looked at categorized them into three different types, firearm deaths, poisonings, or deaths by other means like falls, car crashes, kind of other traumatic, you know, premature violent deaths or whatnot. And they looked at the stratification into intentional, unintentional, or undetermined. So again, looked at the causes of death, whether they were intentional, unintentional, or undetermined. Um, and then they, of course, like I said, broke down the deaths based on age, sex, race, and ethnicity. So um, ultimately, they found that, you know, some concerning things were, were, were showing that the death rate in the United States from external causes has increased from about 65 people per 100,000 up to 103 people per 100,000 people. So again, for every 100,000 people in the 1999, 65.6 of them would fall into this kind of death from external causes. Um, now we're in 2020, 103 out of 100,000 people fall into those, you know, external causes. And these external causes, the biggest causes, the biggest categories in the external causes group included intentional firearm injuries, unintentional overdoses. And so, and the overdoses in particular had tripled from 99 to 2020. So there's far more overdose deaths going on. It's very concerning and it's actually leading quite a bit to the um, increased death rate we're seeing overall. Um, so they said drug overdose in, in, in particular, uh, which is kind of for the most poisoning deaths, increased 10% annually between 2013 to 2020. So from 2013 to 2020, there's been a 10% year-over-year increase in overdose deaths. So the overdose deaths is, is a real problem. I think last check, it was over 110,000 people died from drug overdoses this past year. Um, and so it shows that people are definitely, you know, doing more drugs, getting more tainted drugs, they're abusing drugs and it's leading to people dying. So it's very, very real guys. Now, firearm related deaths increased 5% year over year between 2013 and 2020 between the ages of people 20 to 39. So between young people, 20, to 39, they're getting increasingly violent and using firearms to eliminate one another. So that also shows that there's a lot of issues as well in the society and there's probably some things that are causing people to get more violent with one another to overdose on drugs more and it's you know it definitely doesn't show it shows that there's some issues that need to be seriously addressed now of course as a clinician i don't unfortunately see the end result of these issues but i think there's some side issues that definitely need to be looked at to help reduce this these numbers that we're seeing now of course these were broken down by race and, race and ethnicity and one of the numbers that stood out was that black individuals held the highest rate of firearm deaths compared with any other racial and ethnic groups. So fire, firearm related deaths were five times higher amongst black individuals compared with Asian and Pacific Islanders. So extremely high levels of gun violence amongst young black people between ages 20 and 39. Um, and this, I think they're seeing that this is a strong cause of deaths in especially the black community particularly firearm deaths and uh, you know co coupled with the overdose deaths it's just definitely a lot more um, violence and death going on in the black community unfortunately and I think there's a lot of reasons for that that need to be explored as well now motor vehicle related deaths also increased annually by an average of 1.1% between the years 2010 and 2020 so mean that people are getting you know more reckless 
driving a little more carelessly, probably high on something, overdosing on something, or maybe they're road rage related issues causing accidents. So I think there's a lot of concerning <laughs> details we're seeing in, the, in this data. You know, more overdoses, more violent deaths, more gun violence. Uh, I think definitely something needs to be done. Um, I think people are definitely, I think, getting a little more, uh, you know, quick to anger. Um, could be combined with the economy as people feel it's deteriorating and recession is looming. And it's, you know, it's, I think letting a lot of people getting more stressed out and using violence to to uh, express that. So we got to be careful, guys. Just try to be nice, you know, try to be be cordial. And, uh, you know, hopefully um, these economic times will improve and people will start to, you know, not be so quick to anger. So just wanted to show that that was definitely some concerning numbers I'm seeing. And just want to let you make sure you guys are aware of that. And uh, yeah. Now, even though that the overdose deaths are rising, I will say that there are definitely moves now to help reduce um, some of these illicit drugs that are crossing the borders and getting to the United States and kind of contributing to this uh, drug uh, overdose crisis. Um, the actual U.S. Department of Justice is actually starting to file charges against various manufacturers, some based in China, some based in Mexico, and trying to get them to um, um, basically reduce their production of some of the precursors of these drugs. Apparently what some of what some people believe is going on is that you have precursors of various hardcore narcotics like fentanyl that are being made in various parts of China. These drugs, precursor drugs, are then shipped to Mexico where they're finally um, created or made into the final form of the street version of fentanyl or, or other narcotic-based um, drugs. And then these drugs are then moved across the border to the United States where they're distributed. So there's a concern that, you know, if we if, if the government can uh, can stop these manufacturers uh, from manufacturing these precursors, they can hopefully reduce the avail availability of these drugs, which which there are plenty at this point right now. So basically, the, the government here, in the United States is, is looking to sue manufacturers based in China, and they're working with the Chinese government to try to get these um, manufacturers to stop producing. Now, of course, because relationships between U.S. and China are a little bit icy right now, there's been some, you know, various gaffes going on. And we're actually going to talk about one of those featuring everyone's favorite U.S. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. But ultimately, U.S.-China relationships have been a little bit strained due to some of the issues recently. Like, I'm sure you guys remember the weather balloon that was flying across the United States that caused a lot of ruckus and people believe it was a Chinese balloon and there's some other issues and then this drug thing of course with the manufacturers who are based in China who may believe the government there is protecting and uh, this has led to some other uh, other strife and the economic issues either way US-China relations are strained to say the least so that being said there has been a move to help kind of reduce some of these drugs flowing by going over to China and talking with the Chinese uh, officials to prosecute those folks who they believe are shipping these these drugs that are causing deaths in America. And uh, this has led to basically the United States actually going over to China and um, it was actually they're filing charges in United States courts to then to allow them to prosecute executives of some of these companies who are based in China. And many of these executives, could, of course, they come to the United States. They're all running around the globe. So they're, even though they're Chinese companies, the, the executives are probably really wealthy now. So then if you're selling narcotics, you're going to be <laughs> making a lot of money. And they're flying around. So they're going to try to capture them and, you know, maybe put a slow down some of this drugs that are coming into the United States. But that being said, you know, people aren't being forced to use them, at least to my knowledge. So if you guys come across some street fentanyl, stay away from it. I don't know if it's tainted with something. You know, it's, it's very deadly. I've seen so many deaths from people taking some street perks or street 
Ambien, and before you know it, they get an intentional overdose because it's laced with something very harmful, and uh, you don't want to be a victim, especially unintentionally. Um, that being said, um, yeah, it's definitely getting crazy out here, guys, so be careful with some of these um, drug overdoses here. All right, guys, so another um, interesting article came across my desk, and I definitely want to touch base or talk about it today. So some of the first research that's ever been conducted in this area looks at constipation's impact on the brain, particularly the aging brain. And scientists are seeing some kind of concerning issues, right? So basically, being chronically constipated, meaning someone who has a bowel movement every three or more days, right? So if you're going three days or longer without having a bowel movement, you are technically constipated. Even if you feel fine and you don't have no issues, I know a lot of people claim that, but you are going to be technically constipated if you have not pooped in three days or more. And so what they found was that people who have constipation, meaning having a bowel movement every three or more days, they have been linked with a 73% higher risk of cognitive decline, meaning their brains are, 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 are less sharp. They're deteriorating mentally. So this is very concerning. 73% higher risk. So that means if you're constipated, the chance of you getting, you know, brain injury, brain um, um, decline is 73% higher than it would be for someone who has a normal, regular bowel movement. And so now this is interesting because to me, you know, people always say they don't feel good when they're constipated. But the reality is that you actually may be harming your brain when you're constipated. You wouldn't actually think those two are linked. But the thing about the human body, everything is linked. So you'd be shocked how your big toe can affect your brain and vice versa. And it's a uh, pretty fascinating stuff. Now, this came at, uh, during a recent presentation at the Alzheimer's Association um, International Conference in Amsterdam that took place this past uh, week. And they discussed that, you know, this is kind of a study that they initiated um, in their in their um, kind of research. They looked at some data, of course, um, over 112,000 people they looked at. And uh, just analyzing different data points from different studies that had been conducted previously. Um, and they actually took data from other studies and they looked at, you know, people who looked, who reported their bowel habits and then compared them to those who developed cognitive um, issues later on. And, uh, and they actually did tests to test their cognitive function to determine their cognitive levels at the time. And they found that over this period, um, took place from 2012 up to 2018 is when this was assessed they found that those who reported normal bowel movements had higher cognitive performance on these tests and this overall showed less signs of cognitive aging so it, it really shows a lot of concerning links or not concerning but interesting links between the gut and the brain and first things we, we do know that when you're constipated your body is in a perpetual state of inflammation so it's you know we know inflammation is, is really the devil it's really the worst thing that you can do for your body is to stay inflamed that's why anything that causes inflammation you want to restrict and not do to help promote health and overall longevity so you know constipation it causes the, the, the bacteria in your gut which actually help help you digest food it creates more harmful bacteria by creating an environment that allows a more harmful bacteria to flourish this is why if your bowels are regular and you're moving and you're taking your probiotics and your high fiber you know foods things are moving smoothly the good bacteria is able to stay the bad bacteria doesn't have time to develop which can help reduce the inflammation which overall is good for your health 
Yeah, many believe this is part of the process of many chronic inflammatory bowel syndromes and, and other conditions that cause chronic inflammation in the bowel system because bad bacteria is kind of overwhelming the system and which overall affects your immune system, which can over all the now we see affect your brain function. So this is very real, guys, and it's not really, you know, talked about that much, but because you listen to the Health and Wellness Connection, you're getting the true info, the true alpha that's really gonna help you keep at your best health and wellness state. So that being said, so what are the takeaways, guys? You got to have normal, regular bowel movements. I say once a day is fine. The study actually showed if you took more than once a day, like took two a day, you actually had some negative effects. So because, again, your bowels are how your body also regulates water. So that's why it's also very important to drink a lot of water, because when you drink water, it helps softens your stool so that you can poop easier and have less strain when you're going to the toilet because you don't want to strain either. So hydration is critical. So hydration, like we said before, I tell people on average 1.5 to 2 liters a day. Smaller, if you're a smaller person, you should bring on a lower end. If you're a bigger person or if you're a very active bigger person, you should be probably drinking even more than that, maybe 2.5 liters. So you want to be very active. Um, so you want to gauge your water intake based on your activity level. Also, to keep your bowel smooth, high fiber diet is critical you want to be drinking eating fruits and vegetables green leafy vegetables uh, beans things that are high in fiber very important i think i have a whole show on that guys you want to check the archive we talk about constipation the whole show and how to reduce it and how to treat it so go into archives guys you really want to understand constipation and what you can do to help reduce it um, because again it's shown that now constipation it can hurt you in many different ways not just on the toilet going to have potential brain injury from it so guys eat your fiber your fruits and vegetables you know whole grains all that's important exercising is also very important guys being active doing a walk or every few times few, three four times a week that'll also help reduce that help with constipation and last but not least stress guys stress is a killer we talk about this a lot manage your stress effectively stay away from stressful people reduce stressful encounters with people and that can actually help, you know, keep your bowels regular as well. So, um, you know, keep stress out of your life, drink your water, mind your business. <laughs> All right, guys. So another interesting story that I came across here um, goes to talk about mushrooms. Now, we've been talking about kind of mushrooms and how they've um, been used um, or being discovered to be potentially effective treatments for certain mental disorders like depression, PTSD and others. But mushrooms have actually come back into the news lately due to um, an incident that involves the United States Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. So we alluded to this earlier, but apparently Janet Yellen was recently in China trying to negotiate um, regarding some policies uh, um, that the U.S. was looking to help, you know, implement with the Chinese government. And apparently she went to China and went to a certain restaurant that served some of basically a very popular mushroom dish. Now, the mushroom that they she consumed was called Jian Shoking. It's a type of wild mushroom that's known to have psychedelic properties if it's not fully cooked. So, now officially the restaurant that she dined at that was in Beijing stated that the mushrooms were fully cooked and they do not think there was any psychedelic activity in the food that she bought. But, it was reported that when she was there dining in this restaurant, that she had four helpings of this mushroom dish. Now, the mushrooms are apparently very unique. They're called, like we said, Jian Shou King. They're from the Yunnan province of China, and apparently they're very popular. 
in that area. So apparently people eat the mushrooms, they tend to hallucinate, they tend to have some psychedelic and euphoria type you know, sensations. And as a result, they become very popular. Now, again, the reason why this whole this whole thing became an issue because apparently Janet Yellen was <laughs> meeting with one of the Chinese dignitaries and she was doing some some odd kind of activity. She was bowing and shaking and doing some things that weren't really considered standard protocol. And now there's some belief that potentially because she had these mushrooms right after right before she had this meeting that the mushrooms may have caused some hallucinations, act, causing her to act erratic. And, uh, you know, it's just funny how, you know, mushrooms, which were once a taboo subject, are now, you know, kind of the center of controversy. And here involving two high level, you know, government dignitaries. So, of course, I was intrigued given the whole mushroom discussion. And I wanted to go a little bit deeper as far as these mushrooms, number one. And then two, we're going to talk about how there's new actual FDA guidelines being issued for researchers to really understand how mushrooms potentially could have some important medical benefits. And we've seen some already, but there's some new, very fascinating things that are coming out that I think could really open the door to a whole new level of neuroscience and neurobiology research and understanding. So again, she consumed um, these uh, mushrooms that are actually um, officially part of the Lanmoa genus. Um, and the cool thing about kind of mushrooms, there's only about 2,000 or so mushrooms that are known to be edible globally. But it's believed that here in China, there are over, there are over, um, they said there are over 800 different species of mushrooms in this particular province, the Yunnan province in southern China, that that there's locally over 800 different variants of mushrooms that are edible. So it's pretty fascinating stuff, and there's a lot of research that's not really clear yet. This is when Chinese medicine, I think, has a bit of an advantage. They focus a lot on some of the natural herbs and understanding the medicinal properties of these herbs. And they have known that there are over 800 various mushroom species in China, at least in the southern province of the Yunnan province of China, that potentially could have medical benefits because there's various chemicals in these mushrooms that can have biological effects on us. Now, we know about some of the more commonly consumed mushrooms, particularly those of the psilocybin variety. So psilocybin mushrooms are technically banned. However, certain localities in Oregon and other parts of the country have actually allowed them to be possessed in limited quantities without fear of prosecution. Um, other um, chemicals that we're seeing they're MDMA-like chemicals as well in various mushrooms. And also um, uh, mescaline, uh, dimethyltryptamine, DMT. Um, all of these are different chemicals that we're seeing in certain mushroom variants. And of course, you know, because it's essentially um, technically illegal to possess these kind of mushrooms, research has been very limited. But like we said, Oregon in 2021 made uh, magic mushrooms legal for mental health treatment due to some of the research that had you know, been released. And then Colorado also did the same thing in 2022. California has a bill pending that will potentially legalize mushroom possession. So there's some new kind of discussions regarding mushrooms and how whether or not they could be an effective method in mental health management. So, you know. One article that came across my desk that I was very intrigued by this entire mushroom um, kind of kind of phenomenon looked at how mushrooms could potentially heal a broken mind. So we all know that when kids, you know, are growing up, they, um, you know, their brains are more open to learning. They can 
take things in quicker. They can learn process information faster than a particularly older people. And many people believe that this is because the child brain is very open to actually receiving information and processing new thoughts and, and concepts. So this is why kids are so valuable because children can take new concepts, kind of process them, and they can actually develop new kind of ideas and new kind of thoughts in there. So their imagination is very vibrant for this very reason. As we get older, of course, the, we lose the ability to learn quickly. Our brain actually has pathways that shut down as we age, making it harder for us to learn and kind of understand new concepts. This is why language learning is such something kids can do very easily. Learn new language. If you have a child, you speak to them in different languages, they can actually learn those languages much quicker and understand them much faster as opposed to an older individual who's trying to learn something new. It's believed that because of the brain kind of shutting down and becoming more efficient as we age, and certain parts of the brain that we don't use tend to kind of fade away. And ultimately, our brain becomes very more efficient, but it's also less open to change. And most people see this in the stubborn old man and woman kind of trope that's used <laughs> to describe a lot of elderly people. And it's mainly because that's how we grow. We, we Our brains get more efficient and we tend to focus on things that we do, making us more specialized. And ultimately, you know, it, it affects our ability to learn and grasp new concepts. But either way... It's now believed that there's some research showing that psychedelic drugs may actually help to reopen the brain, right? To help it get back to that childlike state, allowing people to kind of heal the brain and actually make it easier to deal with different tr mental issues as well as potentially even learn new languages and even learn new skills. Uh, even stroke recovery, traumatic brain injury, you know, things like that. So this is actually pretty, I think, revolutionary uh, things. Um and now researchers out of John Hopkins University, they're actually looking at, you know, how the brain responds to various chemicals uh, that we see in, commonly in some of these mushrooms and whether or not these can actually be effective in retraining the brain. So, you know, to me, I was fascinated by this. And so when I hear about researchers doing things like this, I think it, it's a very good, good sign for overall kind of development. So basically, we know that MDMA or also known as ecstasy, right? Can, is was used to help soldiers recover from traumatic events like they were on the battlefield had a traumatic kind of experience people dying people getting their heads blown off and whatnot apparently on the research and in the, in, the, in the military research they were actually using mdma to help people kind of relive the events that they've experienced that were traumatic that maybe they couldn't emotionally deal with helping them kind of understand it and process the information and, as, and, as, and move on from it basically and so it's so so important, I think. Um, many people believe that these kind of traumatic events ultimately leads to drug use and drug addiction. This is why you see a lot of folks who've been through traumatic issues, use drugs and alcohol to mask those feelings, ultimately becoming addicted, and then also leading to severe bodily injury from harmful drugs. So it's believed that if psychedelics can help people get deal with these issues so they won't be dependent on you know harmful drugs to cope, it's going to actually be good for health in the long term. So what they found was that drugs that can help reopen the brain, if you will, and allow for processing of old uh, um, feelings and memories um, actually is found in chemicals like psilocybin, MDMA, LSD. And these different drugs actually affect the brain in different ways and can prolong these openings different for different periods. So... Um, and it was found that those who had these, when the brain was open, if you will, that psychotherapy becomes far more effective 
and helping people deal with these concepts and deal with these issues as opposed to doing psychotherapy on a what do we call a quote-unquote sober individual so um, of course this has many um, researchers are very excited and if they feel that potentially that this could become transformative in the field of psychoanalysis and getting people to kind of process those harmful memories that may be affecting their mental health and um, you know I think you know as we go forward we're going to see more research kind of looking at psychedelics and how they can potentially benefit you know folks dealing with trauma of course in association with mental health professionals helping them process that trauma and hopefully overcome it so they can move on and have a normal functioning life so because of all this and all this research and potential kind of benefits there's been a strong push to help decriminalize or at least permitting these um, you know mushrooms to be used for medical research purposes and I think um, as many states continue to understand some of the benefits you'll see I think more laws allowing for research to uh, to proceed regarding you know mushrooms and different mushroom treatment so that being said guys i'm not saying go out there now i do love mushrooms by the way none and not all mushrooms are psychedelics they're regular mushrooms you can buy in the grocery store currently that are very good and you know a good source of protein and various vitamins vitamins and minerals and fiber as well so you know i'm a big fan of, of mushrooms but some of these unique psychedelic mushrooms can also be i think very unique and uh, kind of a novel way of treating mental illness mental illness that has really plagued uh, many many people for many many years so all right, guys, so we're coming to the end of the show. We kind of ran over time, but it's okay. Um, it's always a pleasure to do the show. I want to thank you guys for listening here and just kind of you know, bearing with us here. We're going to come with some fire here. We're going to keep coming with the fire, and uh, we appreciate you guys' support. Again, if you have any questions or concerns, feel, feel free to reach out to me at uh, all the um, ways to contact, as we have aforementioned. But, of course, email birookmd at gmo.com, as well as Instagram at drberrymd. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going to be um, here and uh, still pushing. So reach out if you need anything and we will try to assist. That being said, I'm signing out. This is your host, Dr. Barry. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Health and Wellness Connection podcast and radio show. For more information on ways to get healthy, please check us out. www.anchor.fm forward slash HW Connection. Here you can re-listen to the show, check out older shows, and even further support the show by becoming a subscriber to the podcast. Please check us out today. Again, that's anchor.fm forward slash HW Connection. And also, don't forget to follow Dr. Barry on Instagram at drbarrymd. Until next time, stay healthy.